well, uh, good morning. Welcome to See Legal. It's lovely to, to see you there. Uh, whether you're joining us uh, online or from a little watch party, like it is down in uh, Deakin at the moment. Morning to you down there or up in Brisbane, uh, wherever you are, whether you're here in person or online, uh, you're very, very welcome. Um, uh, we want to stand with you at this uh, time. Um, my name's Peter Ranch. The City Legal Community exists to, to uh, consider the bigger questions with silks and suits and cities right around Australia, and that we do, we do that by looking at the Bible together. Uh, the format, if you're new in our midst, and a special welcome to you, is a short talk followed by a Q&A, and you can ask questions at any time by uh, just uh, using the chat function at the base of your screen or um, texting to the phone number you see on the front of the outlines if you're here in person, and that number will also be put on the screen, so you can just uh, text questions at any time. Now, we're very privileged to have speaking for us again, Al Stewart. Al Stewart actually has been speaking for City Bible Forum for like 20 years next year, is that right, Al? Um, so he's going to come up in a moment, but he's actually asked us to read uh, a short section from the biography written by Luke about Jesus and Joshua is going to come and read that. If um, you can see a link on the screen or in person, it's in this sheet. So thanks, Joshua. Uh, morning, guys. Uh, this morning, this morning's reading is from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Uh, For those here, it's in the paper handouts. If not, it can easily be looked up. Um, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, good morning. Uh, Great to see you here uh, in Sydney, or if you're watching online, great to have you with us. Shout out to Eileen. I hope you made it to Canberra. Uh, Well, Joshua just read for us a part of the Bible. It seems very strange because it really does look like Jesus is saying this man uh, in the parable, his story, steals from his employer. And then Jesus says, learn from him, be like him. 
Uh, some people, the commentators have said, well, it's actually in the story, the master who says be like him rather than Jesus. But no, no, the whole point of the story, is Jesus is saying, be like this man. Well, how do we make sense of this? Let me begin uh, with, with a couple of old favorite stories, stories that I, that I love. This man, I, I'm, I think his way to pronounce his name is Zhang Dong Kong, is a world famous pianist. Uh, it's a while ago now. Well, he actually got better looking as he got older, I think. Uh, but uh, he won the um, 1992 Sydney Piano, uh, Sydney International Piano Competition. He travels the world, etc. There's a very interesting story of his childhood. Here we go. Zhang Dongkong was born in Shanghai in 1968, in the midst of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. To play the piano was a criminal offence. Western cultural practices were capitalist activities, counter-revolutionary and very dangerous. When Zhang Dongkong was still was just sorry, when Zhang Dongkong was just six years old, he used to practice the piano for five or six hours a day on the kitchen table. His mother had made a cardboard replica of the piano keyboard for him, and he would play the notes on the cardboard. He knew what the sound of each note was because his mother would sing them as he struck the replicas. If he practiced with two hands, she would sing the bass and he sing the treble or vice versa. When the neighbours were away on holidays, he would sit at the old upright piano hidden in the family flat and actually touch the real keys. Even so, his mother would place cloths of fabric behind the note hammers uh, to deaden the sound just in case. He says, quote, I had to do it in secret. That's why the cardboard we didn't want people to hear because if our neighbour heard a piano or a sound like a Western tune, they would be suspicious that there were capitalist activities going on. Five or six hours a day um, because his Chinese mother uh, wanted <laughs> saw the future. I'm actually married to a Chinese woman who's a mother. I can kind of understand that. Anyway, okay, that's Yang Dong Kong. Now, to a totally different end of culture, does anyone recognise who that little boy could be? Brad, good guess. Bradman? No. Thanks for playing, Pete. Uh, he was born in the late 1940s in a little village in Austria and uh, grew up very keen. You've all heard of him. There he is at age 18 or 19. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Arnold started keen on bodybuilding even as a teenager. He arrived in the USA with a gym bag and that's it and could hardly speak the language and so built himself the body that has made him world famous. One story I like about Arnold is that as he got to look like this, there were a group of people met him, etc., and said, oh, Arnold, we don't want to look like you do. To which he said, don't worry, you won't. Um, and, of course, he made a whole lot of your thinking person's movies, etc., became the governor of California, uh, and it's all history. Now, one last story. One of, I think, my favourite human beings, I've never met this lady, but I think she's great, is Ash Barty. Uh, this is her on the front of Women's Health magazine in 2017. In that article, she outlines her uh, training regime. She had to watch the food that she ate. She was in the gym. She was hours and hours on the court every day. In that year, she went from being ranked 271 to being ranked 17. And then, of course, last year, 2019, she won the French Open and she's ranked number one. Now, what do all three of those stories have in common? The answer is they're people who have seen the future and what they wanted 
and they grabbed their window of opportunity. I guess you'd say it was Zhang Dongkong's mum who saw that, huh? uh, but Big Arnold saw it, Ash Barty saw it, um, saw that opportunity and grabbed it. That is what Jesus' parable is about. The window of opportunity you have and grabbing it. All right. Now, uh, we're in the middle of four weeks uh, with City Bible Forum Legal, looking at the strange sayings of Jesus. Essentially, four parables that seem counterintuitive to what he would, you would expect him to say. If you're reading parables, generally, I think there's three fairly simple rules. One is understand who the audience is. Uh, two, generally, the parables make one laser-sharp, razor-sharp point uh, that Jesus is making. And the thirdly, often in the parables, there's a what-just-happened moment. I know there's other ways of saying that, but you can't use that, that acronym in a Bible talk. It's the what-just-happened moment. This is not what I was expecting. That's usually what Jesus is pointing to. So here we go. Let's see if we can make sense of this clever parable that Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. To put it in context, the way Luke's gospel works, Jesus is in the north of the country for the first nine or so chapters of Luke. And then at chapter nine, verse 51, Jesus decides or realizes it's time for him to walk uh, to Jerusalem, knowing that he will be crucified deliberately to do that. So Luke 9, 51 says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Actually, the original literally says he set his face to go and do that. And um, in those days, well, that's the modern uh, way in Israel on Google Maps. I think it's 164 kilometers to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, in Jesus' day, there were no highways. He would have walked essentially down the Jordan River, 100 or more kilometers. All right. As he's doing that, He's speaking to people about what will it mean, literally, to follow him? What will it mean to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus? And so in chapter 16, verse 1, uh, the story that we're looking at, who's the audience? Luke tells us, Jesus told his disciples. Okay, that's important. He's speaking to those who are choosing to follow him. Relevant to today as well. Okay, let me read the parable again. Joshua read it for us, but let me take it through again quickly. And let's, um, uh, if you like, well, I'm going to read it. Here we go. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. He's about to lose his job. He's going to be middle-aged, middle management and unemployed. And in those days, there's no Centrelink or uh, job seeker or whatever. Um, he's got a problem. So verse three, he realizes that. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll, he realizes he just got that little window of time. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Okay. How does he secure his future? How does he look after himself in terms of somewhere to live or a job, etc.? What he does now is the reason that very often uh, in large companies, if you're retrenched and if you're kind of handed the revolver, they will send a security guard with you back to your desk 
and you just pick up a box of things and leave. They don't let you back at your computer. You have to hand in your swipe cards, etc. Why? Because you may do what this manager does. Verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked them, how much do you own my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. He asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, uh, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. A slightly different translation that you've got in your hand there, um, bushels versus tons. Now, the commentators uh, on this argue backwards and forwards about, is he uh, removing his own commission on these loans or is he just taking away um, the master's uh, wealth? Uh, was it illegal interest that the master was charging? Doesn't, doesn't really matter. The point is he had a window of opportunity, he grabbed it. And then look at verse 8 where Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted, notice, shrewdly. Not dishonestly, but shrewdly. And shrewd can mean, well, um, sensible, discriminating, astute, judicious. Uh, the original language it may mean wisely. Okay? And then he goes on to say, here's what his disciples are to learn. He says at the end of verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. You see, he, he, counter, um, he counters two groups of people, the people of this world and the people of the light. And I think what he means is those who don't follow him and, and belong to this world, the people of the light, are his disciples, those who follow him, the light. What's he saying? That the people of this world see what they want and grab it, they act. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's a brilliant writer, read several of his books. I think his best book is actually Outliers. And by that, uh, what do I mean? Um, outliers in the sense of those who are super high achievers, world's best at something. Uh, what he sets out to do is to show that it's not just a matter of uh, gift, particular giftedness. What he shows is this, that to become world's best at something, 10,000 hours of practice keeps coming up. So you need to have done that much practice in, in so many different fields. Now, he's not saying if any bozo puts 10,000 hours in, they can be world's best. I could practice cricket in the nets for 10,000 hours and never play for Australia. Uh, what he's saying is you might have raw talent, but unless you put in that much work, you'll never get to the top. And he gives examples of, uh, for example, Bill Gates and the things that lined up that meant he could do that, meant that much computing as a young man. Uh, he talks about world-class musicians and even the Beatles and the, the amount of work they did um, in Germany. It was thousands of hours of playing to then become overnight successes, apparently. What's he saying? Those who become world's best see what they want, grab that opportunity and, and take it. Do you notice Jesus is saying the people of the light don't act in the same way? If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've signed on to say, yes, I believe what Jesus says about the great judgment that's coming and the fact that there will be a heaven and hell, uh, a new creation where those who trusted Jesus will live with him and hell where those will be separated from him. And so if, if you actually believe that in this narrow window, 
of time that we have, what does he say? Well, verse 9. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's not saying buy your way into heaven. Uh, you, you can't buy indulgences or pay money to be forgiven. What he is saying is, if we just have this brief window of time, how do you use your wealth to see people or if you like to invest in eternity so that people will be there to welcome you? In other words, really to see other people hear about Jesus, to, to be there in eternity so that you'll be welcomed. See the future and act now. Use your money, your wealth with a view to the future. Why do I think that? Well, what the parable says, but also what he goes on to say. Now, in verses 10 to 13, he gives four truths about money. And they, it's kind of a logical progression. Let me um, roll through them. Um, first one, chapter 16, verse 10, he says this. There's a follow-on to, you've got a brief window. How will you use your wealth? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. What's he saying? Well, what you do with the small things in life will reflect what you do with the larger things in life. Um, uh, I noticed Jordan Peterson, uh, the Canadian psychologist, he's, he's been very sick this year. I hope he's coming back. But in the previous two or three years, 17, 18, 19, he travelled the world. He spoke to thousands of people in auditoriums, many of them young men who turned up. And in his book, he's got a simple message, and that is to the young ones, tidy your room. Right? Get up, make your bed, tidy up your room. Why? Well, you may feel life's out of control, but if you can get one small thing under control, at least tidy your room, and that's a start. And I think in a way, that's what Jesus is saying. The way you do with something small will actually reflect the way you face something much bigger. All right? But Jesus is talking about wealth, not making your bed. So the second statement. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? His point being, the wealth we have here is small right, compared to the promise of the riches in eternity. Right? It, you know, I think you can see that. That's what he's saying. Worldly wealth, have, have, you, have you handled that properly compared to wealth in eternity? Third point. So if you have not been trustworthy in hand, uh, sorry, third point. And if you have not been trustworthy <clears throat> with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? His point being, the wealth we have here actually belongs and comes from God. So whatever it is you have is the gift of God here. And if you've got to handle God's wealth properly and responsibly, and if you don't do that, will God actually trust you with your own wealth and riches in eternity? And then the fourth one, to perhaps sum it up, says no one can, no servant, I'll say, I'll read what's on no servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What's he saying? Life, life's either focused in one of two directions, and you can't, you can't serve both. Either you'll be committed to serving God or to serving money and possessions. You can't serve both. And it's worth thinking about how would you know, uh, how would we know which we serve? 
uh, perhaps a few different ways. One might be the scheme and dream test. You know, when you're just sitting and you've got some time and the screensaver goes on in your head and what is it you're thinking or scheming about? Uh, whether it's thinking of the kingdom of God and how other people might come to know him versus when I just get the next thing. We'll also sacrifice time and energy to what it is or who it is we serve. Uh, the thing that gets our time and our energy, uh, our emotional energy, that's ultimately what we're serving. And I suppose one more way of measuring it would be, are we able to be generous? Can we actually give money away? Uh, if, if we can't part with it, uh, there's a very good chance that it is our master. So let me just pull a few threads together and then I'm, no doubt there'll be questions. If you're already a follower of Jesus, I know uh, sounds a little crass. I think what Jesus is saying is, you say that you serve me, well, show me the money or uh, follow the money trail. The way we handle, here we go, let me summarize. The way we handle our money shows what we really believe about God. I think that's, that's true. The way we handle our money shows what we really believe about God. Or the American author, Gloria Steinem, she said this, uh, we can tell our values by looking at our checkbook stubs. Uh, that's the American spelling of checkbook. If you're under 35, you don't know what a checkbook is. Uh, <laughs> there was a book with checks, you'd write it, hand it. Um, so I thought, okay, well, let's just go with your credit card statements. That'll, that'll do, okay? We can tell our values by looking at our credit card statements. In other words, our money will go to what we serve and what we love. Uh, and so I think what Jesus is saying in this, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's worth having stopping and thinking, I have a small window of opportunity compared to eternity, it's five minutes. How am I using my resources now with a view to what Jesus says about eternity? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the whole of Luke's gospel is on about the fact that we have this small opportunity now to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And how are we going to make the most of that opportunity? So, Pete. Right, thank you very much, Al. We're going to give out just a moment to catch his breath and then we'll swap places and I'll um, start asking questions. We've had some absolutely fantastic questions come through. Uh, already um, uh, on the text and on the screen, if you just want to fill in the chat function there, ask a question. We've got lots of lots of time. Um, uh, so, Al, I'll get you back up here and um, we'll get going. Okay. Now, Pete, we have to get the rules straight on question time. That is, you can ask anything you want about anything as long as I can say, uh, I don't know. Okay. okay. All right. That's fair. That's fair enough. All right. Uh, first question. Should worldly wealth be uh, expended to gain non-Christian 
friends. Okay. I, it's a kind of follow-up. Not sure that friendship can be bought. Do you know what it's going on? Can you just give me the last non-Christian friends? And friends. Uh, not sure that friendship can be bought. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that uh, when Jesus says friends, he means particularly um, that you're that you're buying friendship. He's he's saying use your wealth now with a view to seeing people hear the message of Jesus, so that they'll be able to believe in Him. Uh, and and we'll be there with you in the new creation. Okay. Um, now that's that's very broad brush. Where exactly would you spend your money? What are you able to be generous to, etc.? Uh, there's other parts of the Bible that are very relevant to that. There's also common sense. Okay. We've got a question uh, from Melbourne. It's a little bit worrying. Um, uh, yes, non-believers see the future and act, but what if the it's not a virtuous path? E.J. Hitler. And uh, further to the last question, so how does Jesus guarantee a better path? Right. Interesting. Jesus, Jesus is saying here, this man saw, had this window of opportunity. He saw what he wanted and he grabbed it. Okay. But what he does, what he wants ultimately is bad. Like he, he uses that time to steal and do the wrong. But I think that's part of the brilliance of the parable. Jesus only made one point. He saw the future. Uh, he, he had the opportunity, he saw the future, and he grabbed it. He's saying people of this world do that. And whether that's, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler or some other nasty piece of work, okay, or um, uh, Bill Gates, who, who is going to use his fortune to cure disease in Africa. They're all examples of they, they have a window of opportunity and they've grabbed it. Jesus, for his followers, open your eyes, Understand what your worldview is and grab it. Okay, now, Al, you're a marketing executive for Torben's Paints or someone. Is that I right? work for Berger Paints. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Studied some many, commerce. Many years ago. Marketing major. Um, so, how did the knowledge of the future impact your life path? Is that a real question or did you make it up? No, it's my question. <laughs> it's really real. Well, I guess. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I did a marketing degree many years ago. Uh, worked for a couple of companies, absolutely loved it. And I'd become a Christian at university. The pastor of our church put his hand on my shoulder and said, I think you could be useful telling people about Jesus. And uh, long story short, uh, I decided that 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 was the case. I had that opportunity. And so uh, 1984, 36 years ago, I changed direction of my working life. Okay, no regrets? No regrets. Uh, no, I'm not looking for a refund. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Question about Peterson. Peterson has 12 rules for life. Yes. Is Jesus offering us, you know, rules for life? Uh, Jesus is offering us forgiveness and the word, the Bible's words are forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Okay. The, the New Testament is a little more complex. I, I think Jordan Peterson has got lots of, Yes, lots of wisdom. Uh, he, he does take the Bible and, and God seriously, although from what I can tell, he's not a, um, a signed-up follower of Jesus. He's, he's not, if you want the Bible, he's not born again. He hasn't committed his life to Jesus, but I suspect he might be on the path. Okay? That where the New Testament is different to 12 rules for life, the promise is if you'll follow, if you'll trust Jesus, that he will give you his spirit 
and the, the Spirit of God will change your heart so you actually want to obey him. And so it's, it's not just rules, it's spiritually. So you'll want to obey him. Now, the New Testament will then tell you if you want to walk, walk with the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God will lead you, the New Testament will give you context of how to do that and what that looks like, which is essentially love God and love your neighbor. But there's, there's more and more content. If you want to know what it will look like, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through to 7 is a good place to start. Okay. All right. Uh, this is a hard question, given that many of us have been ruining the holidays that we've lost and dreaming about the holidays we might have within yes. New South Wales or locally, right? So is it wrong, therefore, to dream about the things of the world, holidays, work, family, and so on? So talking about you know, what you think about. Right. Uh, no, not at all. Kathy and I have, have put down $300 non-refundable deposit on a trip to Bundaberg in March because... My Kathy loves little sea turtles, and that's when the sea turtles hatch. So that's, yeah. that's the plan. Okay. And we back that Anastasia will open the border between now and March. Have you got travel insurance or not? Uh, I don't, you can't get it nowadays, actually. No, I don't think so. Okay. Anyway, uh, no, not wrong at all. And we need to be able to enjoy the good things that God has given us, like holidays or exercise or you know, buy a new car or whatever. Jesus' point is it's not the meaning of life, and every all our decisions ought to be made with eternity in mind. So holidays, travel, yeah, they're all good things. Just don't, don't let it become the meaning of life or, or overbalance things. Okay. A uh, question that's um, uh, quite uh, personal in terms of uh, us as lawyers. Uh, what does this teach us about not just our money but our time and, and product, everything we have as lawyers? Uh, Do you want me to read the question again? Heart, no, heartfelt I've, question. I've, so, I've it's, you know, what does this teach us? Not about, not just about our money, but our time and product. I, I guess who we are, everything we have as lawyers. I, I, as as you look at what the New Testament says about work, for the follower of Jesus, I don't think Jesus is particularly concerned about the kind of job that you do, right? whether you're you know, a tradie or, or a labourer or a barrister or whatever, uh, it's in a, what he's particularly concerned about is how we treat the people that we engage with. Right? Do, we, do we treat people with, with love? In other words, act in their best interest. Are we honest? Do we, do we care for the people that we're able to look after? And so uh, as a lawyer whether or not you realise that you have great power in the lives of the people that you deal with. And so to use that power to care for people and, and seek the truth, etc., I think that's what, that's what Jesus would call the Christian lawyer to. Uh, do you want to just give a reflection on the book that you've just uh, finished about uh, manhood in terms of the, the power angle there? Yeah, uh, I just had a publisher in England uh, knock me back. Uh, so... Um, Sorry to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit raw. Uh, yeah, I've just written a book that uh, if anyone has a publishing house would like to publish. Uh, seems to me that the Bible's, whenever looking at masculinity, whenever the Bible talks about men in their different roles as a um, husband or father or uh, younger men or older men or as a son, the Bible assumes you have the power to influence the lives of people around you. 
sometimes just because you're bigger and stronger, like young men have to be self-controlled, sometimes because of the role you have in the family. A husband has power in relation to his wife for in, in many ways. And, he, and the Bible says you've got to be very careful how you use that and you need to use it to love and nurture and care for those people around you. That just keeps coming up again and again. All right. Uh, two last questions. Uh, is the parable just a, uh, more than a juxtaposition than an example of behavior to be emulated, or is it both? I think I'd, I see the point. It's this or this. I, I suspect it's both. Right? So it's, it's contrasting um, the, <laughs> the clarity with which the people of this world see their goals, right, which are time-bound and temporary. Okay? I mean, even, even Arnold couldn't beat time and gravity. Okay, versus the Christian people who say we believe in eternity, and yet we don't. His his Jesus' concern is that those who follow him don't go for it with the same enthusiasm that the people of the world do, and that's what he's pushing us to do. So it is kind of juxtaposition. It's also an example to emulate. Okay, but it's a broad brush thing. If you want more detail, there's other parts of the New Testament. We'll give it to you. So what should a Christian person, a follower of Jesus, daydream about then? Well, Jesus says the Christian person should seek first the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. And what does that mean? Well, I think it means the rule of Jesus in the lives of people. And ideally, the Christian person who still needs holidays and food and all that, but will be thinking about how can I be part of the kingdom of God growing, of other people hearing about Jesus, of those who do follow him being encouraged to keep on going, of my local Christian community, you can call it a church if you want, Christian community being kind of strengthened and loving and caring for one another. Okay. That ought to be what uh, you know is, is in the back of our mind all the time. Okay, so I think we can just sneak in one last question. Uh, there's a saying that goes, uh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Comment? I think that's wrong. If you start seeing things from a heaven's perspective, from an eternal perspective, it makes things in this world very clear. Uh, and so what, what will last? Uh, that's, that's the point. Do you, really want to, do you really want to pour your life into and make the absolute priority of your life something that will just disappear? Um, yeah, I, I could go on and on about that, but I think that's, that's the case. Is what you're pouring your life into going to truly last? That's what Jesus is asking us to think through. All right. Uh, next week, are you speaking about the righteous tax man? I mean, isn't that an oxymoron? What's the story? No, there? Not the righteous tax man. Um, next week is, um, uh, why the good man is rejected and the bad man is accepted. So Jesus on kind of the reversal of morality. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. Thank you very much, Al. What's the reference? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, it's Luke chapter 18 and... 9 to 14. 9 to 14, yep. Okay. So you're right about... Yeah, you're right in the tax man. You're right there. Okay. okay. Uh, Pete was right. I was wrong. Okay. Um, That'll be a first. Okay. All right. Um uh, thanks so much for being with us uh, today. Uh, if, you're, if you're new in our midst, um, there's a little feedback form, which is the only way to find out about future City Legal events. I just fill that in and, and I, I hand it to Al or myself. 
And uh, thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you at the same time next week. Bye-bye.